Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, and today I'm joined by Mike Prada. Uh, you probably know him from his former work at SB Nation as well as his current newsletter, Prada's Pictures. Um, actually, really funny, I, uh, I, I first kind of, I, I obviously had known your work before because I started up at, uh, at SB Nation in February, March? No, yeah, it was March. It was the day after OKC Jazz uh, that debacle happened. Tom brought me on at Indie Cornrows. And uh, so one of my favorite works that you've ever done was, well, I think it was your first newsletter. You did a work on the SOS defense. Um, for the that, second one, yeah. That was yeah. the second one that the Sonics yeah. did. And that, like, so if you were into X's and O's for the NBA or WNBA, please go follow Mike's work. Uh, he does some incredible stuff. So, Mike, how are you doing today, man? Well, you know, I'm good. It's the uh, playoffs have been very interesting and exciting. Uh, WNBA season wrapping up soon. Playoffs start next week. So, yeah, no, doing good. Definitely nothing to complain about, man. It's a work in progress every day. But so also, first of all, you're working on a book right now. Tell me about that real quick. Uh, yeah, um, just starting to. Um, you know, it's it's basically kind of, I think, uh, and we think that the the modern game, I think it's really hard to analyze the game as really quant- jumped through quantum leaps over the last four or five years even, certainly over the last 10 to 15. And I think a lot of people who watch basketball are sort of not sure what to make of how the game is completely changed. And so the goal of the book is sort of to be like kind of the, the modern tactic the tactics guide to the modern NBA. Um, we'll see how the hell I'm going to do it. <laughs> that's a big ask. Um, but that's the plan. We're looking at like spring 2022, hoping to talk to some important people who can kind of, you know, make it so that if you're a normal fan, you like basketball, like you kind of can at least understand how the game has changed and what is going on without having to get into like this super deep PhD. Like I need to know these terms like that seem very jargony. And that's kind of the goal is to be able to kind of put it in one place to kind of make it simple for people to understand what's actually happening and what parts of the basketball that they knew still apply what parts don't anymore, how have those things changed. Um, that's the goal, and we'll see. I don't know. Hopefully, I can do it well. They, oh. they think I can, I guess. <laughs> I'm excited, man. I'll definitely be excited to read that. It'll be great. Um, it's funny because I was talking to, uh, I, like, you know, probably April or May. I was talking to Chris Herring, and he's writing a book about the Knicks. Yes. And that was the first time I talked to anybody about writing a book. And I thought about it because I was working on an article on TJ Warren then, and that was the most I'd ever – my dog's – Hey, and DJ Warren, I guess. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I was talking to him about. Hey, yeah, uh, run more of the offense through him, huh? Yeah, that's why exactly. Nate. That's why Nate got fired. You'd think, right? <laughs> yeah, but I, I was just thinking. I, I think I reached out to. I talked to two of his former assistant coaches in Phoenix, um, and that was like a ton of digging and work for me. And I'm talking to Chris, and he's talking about like talking to like 50 or 60 people. I'm like, wow, it's a totally different animal. So I'm sure you'll do it justice. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I hope so. I've never definitely. done it before. Uh, wasn't planning on it until they talked to me about the idea. So we'll see. I don't know. Um, be awesome, man. You know, look, I mean, maybe I'm being naive now and saying this at the beginning of the book process. I'm sure I am. But, you know, 
it's it's the same process you would go through for any sort of writing or any sort of media just times like a lot more than what you normally do but you know it's still the same sort of you know do your pre-research um figure out how you're framing the argument like figure out who you or you want to talk to and you know just it's just a little bit more elongated so i'm gonna say that now i haven't even (laughs) so this is gonna sound really stupid in a year i'm sure hey man we'll see regardless i'm sure it's you know new york times bestseller by then so uh I've, you know, I got a, I got a loaded question to ask you right off the bat. Um, mm. What do you consider basketball mediocrity? Uh, like you mean like in a franchise? Yeah. Per, per, I mean, what is it? What does mediocre mean as a word? That's a great question. I mean, it's, it is, but it's also fairly simple. I mean, mediocrity essentially refers to like kind of basic averageness, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know why this has to be such a complicated thing. I mean, it's basically if your team is pretty average average relative to his competition and with what seems to be like no quite easy way to go out. So, I mean, why it's the same, I consider it the same thing that I would consider normal mediocrity. I think it, it, it's a word that doesn't sound very nice. Mediocre yeah, doesn't sound pretty rough on it. Yeah. It's not just the connotation. It just doesn't sound right. Like this is going to sound like a ridiculous comparison, but like, have you ever noticed how uh, really bad faith right wingers will say Democrat all the time? Yep. It's because rat does not sound good. And so there's like an association. I, I think the mediocrity suffers from the same thing. I mean, it just means that you're, you're average. Really? I mean, average could be good or glass half full, glass half empty. It depends on how you want to look at it. We tend to look at the empty part of it. I think, oh, most definitely. Most of the time. But it, I, it's, it's interesting how some of these words, mediocrity, what is best with mediocrity, the fact that this is even a loaded question that you even throw it out there. I mean, you're saying it's a loaded question because you think it's a negative question, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, see, well, yeah, it's interesting. It brings up a lot of debate because I think uh, – just from my dealings, I, I come from, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I've talked about this with multiple people. So people listening are probably like, Mark, this is the seventh time you said this, but you know, I'm coming from a place where, um, you know, I, I grew up a fan of the Pacers, but then once I started getting into, obviously I'm not, you know, I have like partial media availability sometimes, but uh, like, you know, you get to a point, I'm sure you went through it too, where you're not really a fan anymore. You're trying to look at things more objectively and, and as an observer, so you can just be more fair when in writing and stuff. And so I, I guess I wouldn't personally view the Pacers as mediocre, but that it, I, I guess it depends on your definition. But a lot of Pacers fans, uh, I mean, they are right. The team has hit a place of mediocrity. There's no question. They've lost in the first round three straight years, four straight years, right? Yeah. Do I have my number five straight years? I think it's uh, well, it's four because they missed they missed the fit. What would have been the fifth year? They missed 16, the 17, 18, 19, and 20. They've lost in the first round. And the first round is you're somewhere between the ninth and the 16th best team in the league. Right. Yeah. Seems oh, like man, it pretty much defines the point. That's true. I mean, yeah, it is true. I, I think, but it's interesting to look at, like, I'm not trying to make excuses, obviously injuries aside and all that. Um, but I do wonder, you know, when you look at the team ceiling in terms of uh, saying, you know, when Paul George was first, before he got injured that's obviously not my mediocrity but like you look at the team that have played the Cavs and they 48 wins lose to LeBron as the, they were the four seed that year yeah they were the, no they were the five you're talking about 2000 you're talking about 2018 where yeah. they had that great series with and with Oladipo's big year yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah and so I I don't know I think it just brings into question for me I mean this team on pace for 50 wins this year um 
obviously didn't hit that because of, you know, COVID and uh, everything. And, um, but I do wonder, like, is there an extent where, like, so you would consider the, the Pacers currently as, as what you would think basketball mediocrity is a little bit? I mean, I suppose. I mean, it, again, it's glass half full or glass half empty. You know, um, if you're – I, I, would you rather be a Pacers fan or a Sacramento Kings fan? Or would you rather be <laughs> – that's, that's one way you can make the comparison. Or do you could say, would you rather be a Pacers fan or a Miami Heat fan to make a comparison to the team or a Celtics fan to the two teams that have beaten them most recently? You know, it just it just depends which way you're looking. Um, I hate to get all epistemological about this conversation. It probably sounds like I'm dodging the question. But, you know, I don't know. The results don't lie. And – I, I guess like what the pro, the reason this conversation happens is that there is like a small market we don't tank uh, element tied into it that is not is something different but gets tied into this mediocre conversation because you look around uh, with the the way the ownership is with the way their history is it, you know they're never going to do a Oklahoma City or a Philadelphia or a like bottom out to to rebuild again type of thing so you always feel like. That like I, I said it when the paces got limited. I said there's almost nothing I can say about this team this year that won't sound patronizing. Yeah, right. And so that that's I think what you're really getting at. I mean, whether you're mediocre or not is just I mean, obviously they are. The results speak for themselves. But it's perhaps a little bit more about like sort of the branding of the the franchise and the self image of Pacers fans um, more so than anything else. And you know that is. That's the bet. I mean, that, that's what they've decided to do. Like they, that's just how they operate. Um, and then occasionally they'll find a great player with the tenth pick in the draft, like Paul George, and they'll kind of bump up higher than that for a period of time. And that's sort of how you get there. Um, that's how the Spurs kind of got to title contention with Kawhi and extended their window. And sometimes you'll whiff on those picks and you'll end up nowhere. And that's just sort of that's the game you end up playing. And I think it's probably better to play that game. I mean, you look at, look at some of the great players that are succeeding in the playoffs. How many of them are, are mid lottery or lower draft picks? Look at Miami. Miami was a mediocre team for a few years and now they're in the conference finals. So it just sort of, I don't think it's necessarily like, it's just a a current state of being. It doesn't have to be a permanent state of being. That's a great point. Except Herb Simon hasn't paid the tax since uh, Jermaine O'Neal was still a Pacer, so that's that. That, that definitely doesn't help. But I mean, um, like, look at the Bucks. The Bucks aren't paying the luxury tax. They're the best team in the league this year until they lost. Everybody <laughs> wondered why didn't they re-sign Malcolm Brogdon to the luxury tax? I mean, look, there's no question that being in a small market, your margin for error is lower. I mean, I don't know if that's some of that is a money thing. Some of that is just like, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do to escape the fact that. You're playing in a I, I don't I don't want to describe Indiana incorrectly, Indianapolis incorrectly. You're playing Indianapolis and the other team that wants these guys are in Miami or in Los Angeles. There's nothing that you can do to affect the different cities and the stuff that's involved there. You know, that's just always the plight of a team in these markets. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that like kind of you're doomed or if you don't pay a luxury tax you can't win a title. I, I don't know. I just I think sometimes we make we do all these things, and then we make up the rules later as to who's allowed to win a title or not. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think uh, you know, just looking at things objectively, uh, there's been a lot of uh, obviously on Twitter. I try and ignore most of it, but a lot of uh, people have come out of the woodwork talking about uh, the Bucks not re-signing Malcolm Brogdon. And I think, in a sense, um, 
it, I don't think it was the worst thing for them to not resign him. That's just my own personal opinion. Obviously, I mean, Wesley Matthews was great for them in his role, and he was part of the, the deal that brought Brogdon over to the Pacers. Um, and, you know, Brogdon at his money and in his role makes sense for Indiana, but, you know, for Milwaukee to pay him to be the fourth, third, fourth best player on their roster in a lesser role, you know, paying the amount of money they was gonna, that he would get paid by the Pacers, it makes less sense. And, I, you know, I think that's kind of how well, I try and less look sense at it. In what's that, less sense in what sense? Well, like when not you're to, paying – Not to use a pun about sense and sense, but, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah, well, I mean, when you look at if you're paying the fourth best player on your roster, because if you can, I mean, Brooke is what he did defensively this year. If you're paying the fourth best player on your roster twenty million dollars, that's a tough sell. I mean, because sell to in what sense? Uh, just in terms of how it could be allocated throughout the rest of the roster, I guess. I mean, I guess it depends on how your team's built, but that's yeah. I just don't think there are rules like that. Ultimately, yeah. I mean, the Milwaukee problem is that. I don't think it's necessarily that Malcolm Brogdon got priced out. I mean, to your point, they it didn't matter in the regular season. They ran to a, bat, a matchup that does not do well for them, and they lost very decisively. There's a hundred other things going on that might have caused that loss, but certainly not having Malcolm Brogdon was a factor in a way that I think even the people who were saying that it wasn't that big a deal is like, well, let's see what happens in the playoffs when you need somebody else to dribble other than Eric Bledsoe. Um, by the way, that's the other thing. I mean, the real problem there is they paid Eric Bledsoe $17 million early, and so then then that made Malcolm Brogdon's contributions less essential. I mean, imagine if you had Brogdon instead of Bledsoe. But, I mean, them's the break sometimes. But, uh, you know, I think um, – I just don't think there are rules like that. I mean, you pay you, – you, you try to get make the best team you possibly can – you try to find value as many places as you can, but you have to think about the whole, and then you make up the rules later. I mean, some of the some of the salaries on – I mean, that, that Dallas team that won the title, like I thought the rule was you had to have a number two and you couldn't have too many bloated contracts. Uh, they had like a seven gazillion bloated contracts. Like it just – you make up the rules later. I don't know. I'm being very nihilistic. nihilistic <laughs> no, you're good. Building. But I, I, I say it because I, I imagine where your line of questioning is going, right, is you're, you're asking, like, okay, look at where Indiana is right now. Uh, they've got a lot of money committed to Miles Turner. They just paid Sabonis. Malcolm Brogdon, obviously. Oladipo's in the last year of his contract. Uh, who knows what's going to happen to him? TJ Warren, I believe, has only one more year left in his deal, or is he? Have two? I think he has two. Yeah, this oh, was okay. Yeah, well, he has two well, left. I believe. Boy, what a what a fucking heist that was. <laughs> I know. Um, I know you give me started. Uh, but uh, you know, you're, you're looking at this team, and they have very clear lack of top end talent. They have some fit issues, and they have bloated salaries, and they're in a small market, and their owner is not known for uh, thrifty spending in any normal circumstance, um, you're probably thinking as a patient, like, well, shit, what's the way out of this hole that we have built for ourselves, right? I mean, that's kind of why you're talking about this, right? Yeah, 100%. So to me, the answer to that is like, you just have to do, I mean, this could sound boring, but you just have to do the best with the hand you're dealt. I don't think like kind of looking at how other teams have done it or um, any rules that, can and can't work about how you're permanently stuck to mediocrity or you're permanently not stuck or, you know, anything like really applies in this situation. Um, you know, it's, you have to look at your team before you look at it and what's best for your team before you look at the models and what's best for the other team. And 
even once you do that question, it becomes complicated, but at least you sort of, I just think it, this is what fa- fans do this compa- point of Harrison a lot. Like I get it, but it really comes down to like, how do we max, what do we do to kind of make this whole work for us with the hand we have rather than like kind of, do we duplicate another model for team building? Yeah, that's a great point. Cause I think, um, I was talking to, I actually not to hype myself up, but I was talking to David West about this uh, on one of the first podcasts I ever did. Um, that was, first of all, that was one of the most unnerving things ever. I was like, that was the most intimidated I think I've ever been. I mean, he was a great dude. <laughs> awesome to talk to. But I remember as soon as I saw that the number popped up on the phone, I was like, Oh my God, this, I'm about to talk to David West. Um, but you know, he, Damn, am I going to get this stare down and like, is he going to want to like fight <laughs> me or something? <laughs> right. Yeah. I know what you yeah. mean. And, um, it was, it was cool. Cause we talked about golden state a little bit and he's like, you know, everybody shifted what they did to try and be like golden state. And that's the problem because you have, you can't be golden state. You have that. You have three generational talents on that team prior to Kevin Durant joining. Um, and so that's where it comes with, especially with a small market and you're looking at the team, you have to build in non-conventional ways to, to try and compete at your highest level, I think is the way that I look at it a little bit. Yeah, I think for sure. And like, you know, you do have to sort of adopt some of Golden State, but you have to be able to adopt. Well, yeah, you can't like, shoot 24 threes a game and expect to compete. So it's right. But you, you, you can say like, do it a different way. Yeah. I think that's, there's certainly the case for that. I mean, a lot of times it comes down to drafting and this is something that I think Indiana's recent history is not, very kind and this is what hurts them you know that uh, the best way to kind of get out of being in a state of stasis with big contracts to in prime or post prime players and the Pacers case in prime players is to find a big time player with the 12th pick and the 15th pick or the draft to find a Paul George to find a Roy Hibbert who was I think 17th pick yeah, I think so. Um, to find players like that, and that that's not been their their success recently, um, and so now they're sort of in this tricky situation. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of move on to some specifics about how to help. Oh yeah, get sure. out of this. So, I mean, the the most pressing issue is Oladipo, right? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I would love your opinion on what you would do with Oladipo. I think my opinion off the bat is. You, you can't lose him for nothing. Obviously, that's not galaxy brain to say that. I, you can't lose him for nothing. Uh, he's, when healthy, the best player on the roster. Um, I mean, he was like borderline a top 10 player in, in 17, 18. And um, so, I don't know. I think it's hard to weigh in your head, you know, would you rather keep this guy and bet on him getting healthy, which that's a lot to, to ask considering how the last two years have gone. Um, or would you rather trade him before a things get worse and he, his market value doesn't go up at all. Um, I, I don't know. There's a lot of questions that come into to what you do with that. Yeah, definitely a challenging situation because of the timing and because of his injury situation, which, I mean, if you really zoom out and look at all career, he's had one spectacular season and the rest of his career is not matched up to that. One, because he was in a bad situation in Orlando, maybe. And two, now because he's not healthy. So, you know, the first thing you have to ask yourself, I think the number one thing you have to ask yourself is, does he want to be here anyway? If the answer is no, then you kind of have to look to find some other way to move him. Um, and, I, you know, you can't worry about, like, getting 
this is part of what I think about sort of the modeling of a team, like the best, you got to get value back for your team, not value back for the player or the contract or the asset. So, you know, you can't, you may, if you take an L on the trade, but you take a W on your roster fitting better together then that's a win. But so that's number one is what he wants to be. Number two is you have to probably be honest with yourself and say the player that we had in 2017, 18 is probably not coming back. I mean, maybe he is, but, and perhaps you could say to yourself, the player we saw in the 2020 playoffs will certainly not come back either. Or mm-hmm. post-bubble, um, we're going to get a better version of him next year. But the player you saw that is our franchise player that we can build our team around is not coming back. I think that it's probably, you know, maybe he does, but I don't think, I doubt it. His injury was very serious, like hip ruptured hip like that's a what he something like that yeah it was he, he ruptured his torn quad. quad yeah that is a that is more serious than an acl injury yeah. like that is a that is a that is a football injury yeah no like it's playing not, basketball I, I talked to i talked to jeff stotts about it he's you know one of the best trainers that associated with basketball and he said you know even with it, it did not help having w- one thing that i'm really interested to see is how uh, injuries occur next season, not in a, you know, just more in an, in an empirical sense than anything, because I think these guys are so in tune and, and used to having the exact same season their entire lives. And now everything's getting totally thrown. Uh, you know, you go from, there's not a rest period between the hiatus and bubble. Cause I think for the most part, these guys were out, you know, working, uh, doing as much as they could in a non-traditional sense, um, which that, you know, when you're not, not that they need to be supervised, but you know what I mean. I mean, you're not working with the strength coach because of the virus. You're not doing your usual things at the mm-hmm. high-end facilities that you're used to. I interesting, mean, though. Impacts. Interesting, though. We haven't seen as many injuries as I think some people feared. Yeah. Certainly not as many soft tissue injuries, so that may tell us something. Um, I mean, it's tough to say because who knows when next season even starts. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know they break just talked they about the, the draft getting moved in November. Today. Yeah. But <laughs> – I think that those are things that you can't really plan for. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I will. I think most likely, first of all, I think the idea of oh no, we can't lose Old Depot for nothing. Like, I think you have to get that out of your heads a little bit. Like, if that is the thinking that can cause a move that compounds your problems, to say we are only going to look at this in a vacuum, is this are we getting value for this player, and not look at like kind of the whole team structure. And I think that, that's that's dangerous thinking to say, and that's not to say that um, you just hold on, you just trade him for nothing. But you cannot. I don't think you can be scared of the possibility that he just walks in free agency. Like I, I just think that is that is thinking emotionally rather than thinking rationally. Because if he walks in free agency, you get his out, you get to, to his salary slot. You've got all the potential problems of what you have with the bad trade, but you don't have as you have more flexibility theoretically. So I just think you have to get that out of your head first. And that goes hand in hand with saying he is not the player. He is unlikely to be the player he was in 2018, which yeah, you don't want to lose that player for nothing, but that's not Oladipo anymore. Um, He's got one year left on his contract. So it's either deal him now. I, I think it's probably unlikely he will sign an extension of any kind because not just because of how he feels about the situation, but because it would surely be for less than what he thinks he's worth, um, less than his current contract given the pandemic. So that's probably out the window. What, I mean, 
I you watched them a little bit more than me. Like I, I'm not sure I saw like this like amazing Brogdon Oladipo chemistry in the backcourt that I think we were hoping to see at the beginning of the season. I'm not saying it was bad, but I'm not saying I'm not sure that it's a given that Oladipo is the best type of complement to Brogdon. And I mean, unless you so so can you really keep both of them? Probably not. Yeah, no, that's a great point because uh, you know before the bubble, I actually thought maybe there was some possibility there. Um, because Victor actually showed some real improvement in his, his playmaking and his handle when he first came back in the bubble just evaporated. Like his handle was just so not there. It was partially, it seemed like his legs weren't completely there. He was, uh, you know, crossing into his leg half the time. It was weird. Um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they're both caught as, as combo guards. Um, and we saw with Malcolm, he can, he can get to the rim He's not a great finisher uh, because he's not awesome at getting separation. Um, but he can't really break down a defense once he gets there. It's So neither guy is really playmaking at a high enough level um, where you can – I mean, as we saw, part of it is, you know, the coaching philosophy and everything. But I swing on Bam Adebayo, you know, 15 times a game is, is not winning offense. And when you can't – create plays with your own gravity for, for other teammates. I mean, it just, it clearly wasn't working. Um, I do think, I mean, there were flashes of Victor before the bubble that I thought were promising, like the game against Boston, uh, the last game before the season got postponed. Um, that was the closest he looked to being right. Um, but in the bubble, no, it was just totally not there. And then you also have to think about now, I mean, the best passer in the team is Sabonis. That's what I think mm-hmm. is very clear from the Pacers or from the Heat series, then you also have to think about like, what does it mean that TJ Warren emerged and how does that fit in? Because Warren is another one of those players that is better scorer than passer. Is he a three or a four? And that of course has domino effects on what you do with Sabonis and Turner. So if if you're saying that Warren is going to be on the team long-term, can a trio of Brogdon, Oladipo and Warren really get the most out of can you get the most out of all three of those guys if they're sharing the court together most of the time? And if the answer is, well, we, I think it's very hard. They're five best players, Indiana, or five highest paid players. I, I don't think we've seen, I mean, they played, how did they play together as a unit? I think you saw that in some case, in most cases, someone had to sacrifice to make the whole work. And given the amount of money, that is going to cost. I just think, um, I think it's very hard to ask those five to be their best versions of themselves together for your team. You'd have to really be careful with who you bring in otherwise. So I, but then the challenge becomes like, what is Victor Oladipo's trade value right now? Um, coming off the injury and everything, but you know, I, I think it's probably safest for Indiana to, prepare for life without him. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and, you know, I think kind of, you know, going conversely off that actually um, in terms of looking at everything by all reporting that's coming out. And I, I spoke for an earlier episode of this um, with Jay Michael, the Indy star. And he talks about, you know, obviously it's nothing concrete, but by all accounts, it's looking like miles turners who will be moved if somebody in the front court is moved. Um, and so that's opposed to Sabonis. Yeah. Yeah. As, as, as opposed to Sabonis. Um, and I, I mean, obviously you can, you can have all opinions off that as well, but I think what I look at is, um, how can you create a high level defense or at least, a a more than functioning level defense 
without legit rim protection because Sabonis clearly, I mean, he's not, he doesn't have the verticality, doesn't have the length to do that. He's not really an intuitive shot blocker, but he, I mean, he defends his position. Okay. Um, but just in terms of building a defense around, uh, well, you wouldn't build your defense around him, but you'd have to incorporate him in the defense. And obviously miles Turner finished defensive player of the year voting last year um, is one of the best rim protectors in the game. Um, how do you, are there like any historical comparisons you could think of, or like just in, in terms of X's and O's in general, how would you go about doing that? Cause I think what we saw with, with Denver this year, it worked at times uh, in terms of, you know, hedging pick and rolls with Jokic and playing and higher they're still out. playing, right? Yeah, they're still playing, but it's <laughs> their defense. I mean, they were, they were top 10 for like the first month of the season and Paul Millsap got hurt for the first time and then they just never came back. Um, so I don't know. Well, it's, it's interesting to look at. Yeah, I mean, of course, the problem is the flip side of your question is, can you build a functioning offense with Miles Turner on the court with his lack of feel? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Um, I do think that, and I've written about this before, and I don't know if Indiana has the personnel to really fully do this, but I think it is is it can be limiting to think of rim protection just in terms of rim protectors. Um, there are ways you protect the rim by not allowing people to get there. Yeah. In a lot of cases. I mean, look at Houston. Would you consider them a rim protecting team? Of course not, but they are one of the best teams at preventing easy shots at the basket because they've got guys who contain the ball really well. Um, and Tucker and Covington, now you wouldn't go six, seven and under if you're Indiana, but I, I don't know. I don't think that like you, how do you how do we build a functioning defense without Miles Turner is a challenge, but not a total limited limitation. Because it's as much it's as much I'll put it this way, it's as much a question as how do we build a functioning offense with Miles Turner? They're both two sides of the ball. You've got the same issue. Um, so you basically have to decide like, are you more likely to be able to build a better defense without Miles Turner or to build a better or to, to compensate for the defensive loss of him, or are we more easily able to find a way to compensate for his offensive shortcomings? Um, and a lot of that again, depends on who you have around him. Um, so I would look at it at everything here. Like I, I would look at exactly – I would look at scenarios where Turner stays and you're breaking up your three perimeter players. I would look at scenarios where Ty, Turner goes and you're finding, you know, maybe a more sort of shorter, slimmer, not not exactly Robert Covington, but someone of the ilk. You know, maybe, maybe I don't know, Jeremy – like a Jeremy Grant type of player that you play with Sabonis who's like kind of – strong defensively without really being that traditional five man. Um, there are a lot of ways to go about it. Um, the only thing I would just say is you have to think of the whole as uh, to keep the whole in mind when evaluating each of the parts. And that's really the challenge that I think India will have. I think Indiana is going to have to sacrifice on a va- on value in some of these trades in order to make their whole more cohesive. Yeah, and, definitely. I and that's something that they have to accept and fans have to accept and fans have to be willing to say like, okay, you can't evaluate this move just in terms of what this move has brought value back versus value to let out. You know, you can't look at if Miles Turner or Victor Oladipo or any of these players that they trade blossom in their new surroundings and say, oh shit, man, why do we trade that guy? He's killing it elsewhere. You have to be able to think only about what it means for you. And I think that's going to be a real challenge for that front office, for that those fans and that fan base. Like, 
because that's the, that's the situation they're in right now. They've got a lot of good players that have thrived when others have been out of the lineup, but have not necessarily thrived when they've all been together. And that's just, you know, you're going to have to find, make trades that are more about how your team fits together than how much value you're getting back. That's a really great point. Cause especially like I try and uh, I try and humble people with, uh, with the TJ Warren deal a little bit, because obviously face value with how TJ played this year, um, it was a horrendous deal. You know, I mean, for Phoenix, Phoenix literally, yeah, they literally paid, paid the Pacers to take TJ Warren. Um, but then you look at it for Phoenix. I mean, that granted, I, I think if they had an opportunity to do that move over again, a, they get better value from somewhere or they don't trade TJ at all. But at the same time, I mean, things were murky. It opened things up for Mikhail Bridges in the front court. Um, and it gave them money to sign Ricky Rubio, who was a huge reason for why they were successful this year, at least to the extent that they were. Um, so I think I, I just kind of piggybacking off what you're saying. It's important to look at the, the context of everything. It worked out for Indiana, of course, it was a huge haul. Um, definitely a bad trade in terms of value sense for Phoenix. But in terms of what it opened up for the rest of their team, it was it was instrumental. Yeah, I mean, you could obviously slice it a whole bit of different ways and say, well, you could have opened up time for Mikhail Bridges by doing move X, Y, Z, or now you're running into a different problem with Rubio, blah, blah, blah. And that's true. But yes, to your point, you know, it is, it is kind of a funny, interesting situation that like, this is the greatest heist of the offseason, and yet the team that was a victim of the heist, their fan base doesn't really seem to care because they're better and other players have stepped up uh, into the vacuum that he's left. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, just in terms of looking more at, at building a team into a, a better team, making this team more – well, I still think they're, they'll end up being a team like I think of the 90s Pacers a little bit, and even then that's a stretch. Maybe the earlier 90s Pacers because the 98 team was freaking insane. Um, you mean but, like what? Like the? I mean those other early '90s. Well, they were really good too. Quite but good I mean, too. Yeah, but I mean, like you look at it in terms of obviously, I don't think there's going to be anybody as talented as Reggie Miller on this roster. There isn't now, and the odds of that happening through trade are, are slim to none. Um, but you look at it as a team where if things break right, they could make an Eastern Conference Finals, and maybe you go from there. Because um, so I think you know if this team had been fully healthy this year, I still think they're a second round team. Um, they're still definitely a piece or two away from being a real, I, I guess you would consider like a contending team, a team that could make a conference finals. Right. Or like, well, how would I suppose, you suppose? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I, I, as you can tell, I'm not big on these labels. Yeah. Yeah. I guess labels are <laughs> arbitrary, but just in terms of trying to look like, and I'm a big com- compartmentalization person trying to look at, look at things like that. Um, but it, in, you know, in terms of looking at how you build a team, I feel like, especially when you're coming from a smaller market and you maybe don't have a top flight player, scratch the small market part, but if you don't have the top flight, you know, top five, top 10 player. um, Top 15, top 20. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. I was trying to be a little bit. Top 25. Hey, I mean, TJ Warren's got to be top 10 now, right? Like, I mean. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, to your point, though, you got to build the team that fits together the best. That's really what it comes down to. And that means that you're going to have to accept uh, some talent L's in order to have the whole work. I mean, the to the 2013 Pacers or what I like to call the sort of mid to from like the middle of 2013 to the middle of 2014. Yeah. And if you consider that one season and you just forget about the first half of both <laughs> yeah, of those seasons, the <laughs> they were the best team in the league. 
um, that team, their whole was much bigger, greater than the sum of its parts. That had a, they had a mix that worked together uh, with guys who, when they went to other places and in other functions, really did not fare as well. Lance, Roy Hibbert, uh, those types of players. Um, but they had a whole that made a lot of sense and it was very cohesive and it fit really well together. If you're a team like Indiana, that's what you have to build. Uh, ultimately, if you want to be able to kind of win without a top, top, top talent. And again, like they sort of now have the opposite problem, I think, where they've got a lot of different players who have emerged and are talented, but it, the whole, for reasons that are somewhat beyond their control because of injuries, although I'm not sure that's a, organization that's done a great job with injury prevention and sports science, you know, that's a whole separate conversation, I suppose. Um, you've got to have a hole that makes sense. And so to me, part of step one is who's your next coach and like, how, what are they, what are you trying to build with that person um, is really, I think the big operative question right now. Yeah, definitely. And we're still seeing that today. They just released their, their list today was like 15 people. So we have a yeah. very, long very, very, <laughs> Yeah, very like, hey, look, we're opening our search up. Look everyone, at us. We're opening our everyone. search up. Yeah. <laughs> we're totally not just zeroing in on one candidate. We're opening it up very uh, transparent like that. Uh, also, some great agents getting their name, their hats in the name. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's funny. You know, the, the longer that I've been doing this and talking to people, the more I realize how much agents play a part in everything. It's kind of crazy. Not just a part, but yeah, oh, that's yeah, a separate like, conversation. <laughs> you mean the um, Clutch Sports yeah. Lakers? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. Who's your coach? And then who's your, what's the kind of team that you want to build ultimately? Because I mean, the one, the one thing that I think ultimately cost Nick McMillan his future, it sounds, I mean, there's like a lot of stuff, but you know, Nate McMillan is one of the best pragmatists in the sport, but he wasn't, certainly wasn't building an offense that was cohesive and kind of dynamic and sort of right. I mean, this was one of the big problems. And so the team had a gear, but not, but a ceiling. So you have to, I think step one is to decide like sort of what is sort of, what is the kind of team we want to build. And then you have to like be brutally honest about every single piece on that roster and whether it fits what you're trying to do. Um, old from Oladipo on down. Uh, and that's, it starts with who your head coach is. So it's kind of hard to have this, conversation until we know who the head coach is. But I mean, I guess the, the way you could ask is like, what kind of team should the Pacers be building? That is not like totally pie in the sky, like theoretical, that makes some sense with who they have, but it's not locked into any of those players. That's a tough question to answer. Yeah, definitely. Well, to, to ask you the tough question, you know, if you, um, if you had oversight, if you're the GM or the, President of basketball ops, you never know which one with each organization. Um, what what would you, you know, obviously just in, in a minute sense, what would you do with the offseason? What's like a perfect offseason in your mind? Well, I think it's fairly clear you're not going to do anything with Brogdon. It sounds like you're not going to do anything with Sabonis. And given the value of his contract with his production, you're probably not going to do anything with TJ Warren. Right. And so then yep. those are sort of your, your three tent poles, all three of which are under contract for multiple years. So you have a combo, a really good combo guard who in the backcourt, you've got a lethal sort of 
what I call like a random score. He picks up his points in very random ways. Um, very capable scored, um, but not necessarily an amazing playmaker for others. Uh, and then you have your big, who's just this great playmaker for others, and but he has some defensive limitations. So, you know, from there, I think, you know, if those are your three core players, I think you need to find somebody who can provide some play ma- secondary juice and playmaking him at the two, three position, two, three ish area, mm-hmm. you know, again, a perfect version of Oladipo is that player. I'm just not sure you're going to get that. And I'm not, I have to look at who's a free agent, but I think you need a little more of that, whether it's someone you have on your roster or someone you, you don't, I think you need some of that. And if you're going to move on from miles Turner, I think you need to find another one of those sort of big wings. Like I, I mentioned, Jeremy Grant is just a proxy for this type of player. Um, but, you know, someone of that ilk that can defend very well while still allowing Sabonis, if Sabonis is your five-man. Because otherwise you just, why, what, are you just finding a better Miles Turner? Like, yeah, so is the rest of the damn league. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think they need a little bit more dynamic sort of wing play. They have some good wings on the team, like sort of in their role. Like, I really like Justin Holiday. I think he's a terrific player. Love Justin um, Holiday for, for the way he's playing. McDermott had a really good year last year. Um, Jeremy Lamb is coming back, I guess. You, you kind of forget about him. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron Holiday is a really interesting player. Like, they've got some guys, um, but I, I think they need um, – there's a way to sort of coalesce those guys into someone like a little bit more high level. That would make some sense. And then what you end up having is you have Sabonis as your primary playmaker, Brogdon and Rope backcourt mate X – Maybe it's Aaron Holiday. Finally, he gets some consistency. Maybe it's someone else who is able to sort of defend both guard positions, shoot a little bit, play make a little bit, but he's not like a super high-usage player. You have TJ Warren as your top scorer, and then you have some defensive cover for Sabonis in some way. And then you kind of still have – I mean, a lot of these other guys they still have are under contract, so they're sticking around unless they get traded, right? Like – you still get you some of your second unit juice with uh, Sabonis in the second unit that was so successful, and you saw in the playoffs that that really broke down without mm-hmm. Sabonis. I mean, like I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Sabonis. I know that some people say like, yeah, he's got some weaknesses defensively. That Turner's kind of been misused a little bit and marginalized, and you know, a team with Sabonis as kind of his best offensive player only goes so far. But I think he does like a lot of really great things for your team. I think the fact that you can put him on a second unit really lifts the production of some of these other guys that you have. It'd be nice if you sign him for a little less money, some of these bench guys, but I think that's a very valuable resource, especially for a small market team that is going to need to find, take chances on limited players to be able to have a player like Sabonis who can kind of lift that second unit up. I think that's really valuable. I think he's a guy worth keeping. And then, you know, you still have enough scores in your first unit so that you can play Sabonis a lot with the second unit. But that would be my off-season recipe is that I think if you can find a couple uh, a couple more sort of multi-talented role-playing players at like, the, at like a two, one, two, three positions and like a four and a half to five positions – if there's a way you can turn Miles Turner or Oladipo into a collection of that, that'd be, I think, ideal. I don't still know if there is. And if there's not, then I think you just sort of have to ride it out. And, like, if Oladipo wants to leave, Oladipo wants to leave. 
you know, that's, you got to trust your program. Definitely. I totally agree. Uh, more athleticism, more wings. I think that's 100% the way to go and, and where KP's probably headed. Cause I, he mentioned his post-born impressor that um, the trade market was going to be active for, for the league, which is uh, to me, at least that's GM speak for saying, you know, the Pacers are going to be active um, not to put words in his mouth, but I don't think he would have said it if he wasn't, you know, kind of contemplating that. Yeah. Um, but you know what, Mike, this was awesome. Uh, before I get you out of here, what are you working on that you want people to know about and, and where can people find you? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I got a newsletter that you've shouted out. We've rebooted the limited upside podcast as part of blue wire, uh, contributing every so often to 538 and other places. I'm working actually on a WNBA piece right now, uh, for them. I don't know on the internet, hopefully more places. And obviously I'm looking for full-time employment too. Awesome. Well, if you know anybody listening that can offer Mike full employment, please go do it. I love his stuff. Would love somewhere else to read it as well. Uh, Mike, thanks again for coming on, man. To everyone listening at home, please be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify. Read us at Indie Cornrows. And be sure to check out all of Mike's work. Have a great rest of your day.